how was your coffee? It was really good this morning. Where did you go? Flat Cap, which is near my house. They're the best. Are we doing like some sort of coffee review show how prior did, to the how did prior to the regular show? Have you tried out we well, you got some you got some coffee suggestions this week on Twitter? Yes. I haven't tried any of them yet. Oh well this is the most the worst episode of Ben's coffee review show ever. I'm starting with the one that I always go to, my favorite. I think I'm used to They drinking. know my order. It's awesome. I, I just I'm walk used- up and as I'm walking up he starts making it. Are there beacons involved in this? <laughs> no. It's like <laughs> he old just school, sees you coming. low tech. Yeah. Wow. He's like, Oh, it's Ben. He just knows. I, I think I'm used to drinking a, a double shot because this feels very um mild to me. Yeah, is it mild to you? Oh, yeah. Double shot is standard over here. Right, it's all right. It's, it goes down smooth. Is is that because um they under extract the beans and so they get a decent strength? Not sure, but it's definitely standard. Of- I mean, the place I go to doesn't, right. but they still do a double shot, mm. which is mm. good because that's how I like it anyway. All right. Anyway, we should uh, we should probably get started so Let's that we're not it. here till. For all all day, all night. Yes, but you know what? Let's do the intro. It's the cool kids all do the intro at the beginning. I I hear. I think we need a theme song. The cool kids have theme songs. <laughs> the cool kids do have theme songs, but the cool kids do their theme songs at the end of the show. Now we need like under music for the intro. Oh, okay. I really like. Um, firstly, I've been so getting into podcasts. I yeah, I've noticed you've been listening to like Serial and. That one with startup. How good startup. crab and stuff, yeah, and then startup and. So if you're into Australian politics and which I am not, <laughs> um, books and interesting bits of writing and things. Um, yeah. Chat Ten Looks Three is a podcast by Annabelle Crab, who wrote the book I talked about previously about um, called The Wife Drought, and Lee Sales, who fronts a current affair TV show in Australia. Um, have got a podcast. I hear the audio ter- quality is terrible. Oh, it's atrocious. They share a single microphone. And they eat cake. Yeah. It's really, the audio quality is, the production values are, are just non-existent. But um, they talk about all sorts of interesting things. And a couple of things they mentioned were the serial podcast, how everyone was into it, and it was really good. Um, And I think they also mentioned Startup, as they had a, a section of one of their shows where they were talking about insider stories. Yeah, like how much they enjoyed reading books written yeah, by insiders, and everybody's into the. These are the three podcasts at the moment that I hear all about all the time. Well, so I, sorry to. Uh, I'm not. I'm apo- not. No, no, I'm no, just no, saying. No, I'm not. I was not apologizing to you. I was going to apologize to Annabelle Crab and Lisa oh, because theirs is not anywhere near on the same level as Startup or Serial. Right. So Startup and Serial are both really well produced. Yeah, no, um, I, as well as a really great yeah. engaging story. And uh, Chat Ten Looks Three is just um, these two people chatting about stuff. Which is entertaining, but yeah, but like it, you could do that with with good, uh, with with uh, with good production values as well. I mean, here's me just sitting there talking, chatting with some guys, uh, uh, criticizing podcasts where it's just people chatting. Yeah, I have to say, <laughs> but you I'm not do, putting like, us up not... there with zero. I'm, we're clearly in the chats. Ten looks three. Yeah, camp. yeah I don't know, but we're, but, uh, but production values doesn't mean like just the the style of podcast. Production values means like. You know, it like the quality of the sound. Like, uh, I, I oh, think yeah. you can do. I think you can do a lot better. And in, in fact, this is this. this everybody's talking about this. This is a very popular thing to talk about at the moment because you know Marco and Casey. And there was ATP also the video um, by. It. And my wife posted a posted a, th- a thing to say how you, she edits her show. You sh- you should have opened with that because you anyway. So my wife has just posted in response to ATP, which yep. is why I mentioned okay. it second. Uh, <laughs> Not because your wife comes second. No, clearly. because she she obviously comes She's first. <laughs> she obviously comes first <laughs> before everybody. Yes, indeed, including That's... including both of you. Good. I I love you. I love you, Ben. <laughs> but but my wife comes first. <laughs> That's it. I'm leaving. <laughs> um, no, they she posted a thing that kind of talks about not so much the equipment because we i mean we use equipment that's reasonably good i i have gone to lengths of spending a little bit of money not a massive amount of money i'm no i'm not i'm certain i'm certainly no marco in that regards like i'm not very fussy about the audio gear but i make it i make an effort and, and that's the important that's bit the most important bit. well so the thing that i really enjoyed about serial and startup is it's a different style of podcast. So, 
But instead of being an off-the-cuff discussion between a group of people, they've recorded a lot of audio yeah. of lots of different things, yeah. particularly startup. This guy who's it's basically is it kind of documentary style yeah you say? yeah so and startup is the story of um i forget his name now alex alex bloomberg alex thank you very much ben from this american life former producer of uh the this american life podcast uh, about him and planet starting, money there you go and planet money about him starting his podcast business um and he records everything absolutely everything the, the episode i don't know if you've got here yet ben but the episode that um Maybe, oh, I'm up to I, I was la- I was laughing out loud, uh, and also grimacing. Was one where he found a uh, business partner, and um, broaches the topic of equity: who's going to own how much of the company? And he records his conversation with his new business partner, and it is really uncomfortable. And then they both go home to talk to their wives about what they discussed, and they both record their conversations with their wives, and then they come back the next day and talk again and record that. And you get edited bits of all of that, plus then the kind of narrative over the top of Alex reflecting on all of this. Yep. And that production style, I just think it's fascinating. It's a really interesting way to tell a story. Yeah. And, um, well, it just shows like a lot of the time, like especially in the tech kind of podcast area, which we are part of very much, is this kind of like we have just have a discussion. It's great because we're just three people having a discussion and talking about things. And it just sounds like, you know, as a listener, it just sounds like you're in the room and you're just kind of listening to these people. And like it, that, that's one that's one style of podcast, yeah. right? It's not actually dissimilar to like people the way people think of comics. When people think of comics, especially in the you know much larger world, uh, they think of superheroes because that's typically what they think of they think of dc and marvel and they're the are you saying we're superheroes yes am i batman no no that's ben oh okay (laughs) really i want to be superman (laughs) look look where you can't all be superman (laughs) but i think i get your point there are other genres but there are other genres of comics and there are other genres of podcasts and i think like we we as in the tech industry, like there's a lot, like there's a lot of podcasts that are that kind of style yeah. because it's really easy to produce. Yeah. Like it's really easy, yeah. and and that's I think to be fair, I'm pretty lazy, and I can't fathom <laughs> doing the amount of work that would go into one of these other shows where there's so well, much. The thing more. is, I wouldn't have time to do it. Like it would be, it would be yeah. nearly a full time job to just record a podcast, right? And that's and that's for Alex Bloomberg is right. He's full time, right? Exactly. He's that's starting what he's a podcast trying to do. Company. It's starting. It's starting up the company that he's actually recording the podcast about hmm. and through. Yeah. Anyway, we should get on to the actual how did we show. Get, how did we get onto all of yeah. this? I've got yeah, no we should idea. get onto the actual show. So, hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show where we have. Off the cuff discussions about mobile development. That is development for mobile devices as opposed to any other kind that you can possibly think of, but also possibly including those. Uh, this show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hello. And Ben Trengrove. Hello. And myself, Jelly, aka Daniel Farrelly. And this show is supported by you guys. Thank you very much. I cannot believe that. That people, firstly, I cannot believe that people listen to us just talk about stuff. I don't know why. Secondly, I can't believe that people <laughs> would actually want to give us money to encourage us to do it more. Strange. So, but thank you. Thank you. And this is episode number 46. We're getting up there. We're, it just keeps growing. We're getting old. It's <sighs> true. I am anyway. I don't. I don't know that you have ever. You were ever young. I, I was once upon a time. <laughs> once upon a time <laughs> in my youth. Yeah, back in the day. Yep. So we should start with follow up. I'm very excited about this follow up. <laughs> yes. So last week we were talking. We had kind of a side conversation about uh, paging scroll views. So um, I've I've run into a problem time and time again of uh, needing to create a scroll view or collection view where paging is enabled so you can swipe one page at a time. Right. But where you can see hints of the previous and next page. And the basis of this problem is that the distance that the scroll view scrolls when you do one sort of page worth is always equal to the width of the view itself. Or the height, depending on which direction it's going. Which direction you go. Mm -hmm. Um, Which means that you can't, like in order to 
get it to scroll properly so that you see peaks of the previous and next page. You want it to scroll less than the width of the, the full visible right. view. Um, and we had a discussion about this at Canberra Cocoa Heads, which is the most happening Cocoa Heads in the world. All, all, you know, what was it? Four people at the five? No, four or something like that. It was definitely four. Um, we fit around a, a table for four. And so. there was a bet. Yes. Uh, there were no financial stakes, but there was the great... Well, there was beer involved, I, I, apparently. Well, I, I think this is a retrospective I did, I stake. Didn't, Someone didn't, else has suggested that that's the stakes. I but didn't anyway. know anything about <laughs> this. I just, I just kind of went, okay, well, my dignity is at stake here. So my bet was saying that you couldn't get a scroll view with paging enabled to stop so that you uh, saw hints of the... Um, the previous and next page, right? And you and I disagreed with you, and I was like, "No, I think I can do it. I think you could make I could make it happen, and I think I could make it happen with uh, content insets." And so I thought maybe what you could do is you could ins- use the insets on the left and the right side for you know sideways scrolling things, and let's just assume that we're going left to right or whatever. Yeah, uh, you could use left and right content insets to basically adjust the page size for a paging content view. For a paging collection view or scroll view or table view, yeah, or any uh, any kind of essentially any kind of view that is based on a scroll scroll view, yeah. right? Um, so the so that was my thinking. I was just was just like, yeah, just do that and it'll fix it. But apparently, I'm I, apparently Apple didn't think of this. Um, yeah. So I. So, Continue, because I still think Apple are crazy, but anyway. Anyway, so the idea, like, so my thinking would be, was that what you could do is you could inset the content uh, by essentially the amount that you want to have it peaking. peaking, hmm. And then you, you could adjust a, a little more uh, based on the, uh, based on how much space you want between those pages. So in the example that I ended up writing, because I did, I, I did eventually end up solving the problem. Uh, in the example that I was right, I wrote was it was kind of peaking by ten pixels at points, and then uh, had a bit, ten point space between the pages or the, yeah, the yeah. you know whatever the cells. And so that way, what you do is you have a twenty pixel right content inset and a ten pixel left content inset, and then use the uh, section inset. At ten pixels to adjust for the the cell spacing between the cells, mm-hmm. and that way it just would. The idea would be that it would scroll and stop at the correct points. But the problem was, the problem is, is that when you scroll, it still scrolls by the width of the frame. Yeah, ignores the content. Like it insets. ignores those content insets, yeah, yeah. Um, which seems to me to just kind of not make any sense. Mm. And so the solution to this problem. So I basically, I set up a, the way that I, I went about this problem was I set it up the way that I wanted it to work yep. uh, by setting up the content insets. And you can see all of this on, 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 there's a project that I've set up on GitHub for those who haven't seen it. Uh, you can find that, the link for that in the show notes, mobilecouch.co forward slash 46. Basically, all I did then was rewrite the paging uh, of like the the paging code um, so instead of checking like the paging box in yeah. in uh, storyboard in the storyboard or you know flipping the the boolean in code, yep. um, I basically uh, wrote my own version of that paging code, which pretty much works identically to the uh, to the way that the built-in one does, except uh, rather than stopping at a distance that's equal to the width, right? Of the- except it actually you know takes into account the content insets, yeah, which um, is cool. So I'm I'm going to be really annoying. Yep. I reckon technically, my bet was that you couldn't do it with paging enabled, as in, with the box ticked, or the boolean flipped. And I think I'm right. You can't. Well, you no, can... because as soon as, in fact, the problem is that as soon as you flip that that boolean, the code that I wrote to uh to to actually handle the paging doesn't run because that method is never called. Yeah. So. I would like to say, tech, on a technicality, I think maybe I was right, but but, but, I'm but gonna, I'm also gonna... on a technicality, I managed to get a paging collection view that pages and peaks and peaks. Yeah, so I'm I'm so impressed by your solution, and I'm going to use it. Um, it completely solves the problem, and it's less than like it's it's not even a subclass yep. or a fancy code or anything. And it's not it's... it's not anywhere near the sort of hack I've been doing in the past. Um, so awesome, thank you. 
But at the same time, I still feel like Apple's dropped the ball here that um, everyone shouldn't be in the position of having to re-implement the paging logic. But just given that you have, and it's awesome, one of the things I was worried about in doing that approach in the past was that um, I wouldn't be able to get it to consistently stop at a page boundary, like yep. make it so that if you flicked really, really fast, it would potentially scroll past two pages. But yours does stop, doesn't it? Because it you're does. using the drag ended. Is that no, I'm using I'm using a, a a method that's called something along the lines of um, it's essentially it essentially gets called uh when you when you release the page and then it gives you like the velocity and the where it's supposed it's going to stop yeah yeah and so what I do is then essentially tell it where I want it to stop yeah uh, and ignore the velocity all altogether. But so how do you make sure that it doesn't go past a page boundary? So you don't, you, you don't just, need to, it just, it stops Yeah. because instead of, instead of uh, like, I'm not saying, okay, if you're at a specific velocity, then go to the, you know, go to the, the, the closest page, page to you're what you're going to, I'm saying this is the next page, you stop there. Yeah. Um, the Doesn't only, how fast you're going. the only downside that I've found to this, to my scrolling code, and I don't know if it's a problem with Apple's scrolling code is that when if you have a collection view that doesn't have enough cells to completely fill all of the pages, yeah, right. So your last page is not a full page. It's not a full page. It's like a, a third of two thirds of a page, right? Yeah. And you can test. You can actually test this by adjusting the amount of cells that are created with the project that I've put in the show notes. Um, if you get to the end, and then scroll back and try to scroll back and far enough, but kind of peek into the next page into mm. the third from last page mm. you will end up on the third from last page instead of the second page so you can scroll for that that first time you can scroll two pages at once but that's the only time that i can see the problem and yeah. the solution might be just to kind of buffer that page out so that it is a full yeah, page you make, or something you make the um content size of your scroll view an equal multiple right of the page width yeah um so I that that that's my solution. It's not, cool. and it's, and the thing is, it's not like and apparently other people have come up with the solution before. So I'm not the first. Yes. So and um, I'm completely willing to concede at this stage that you have come up with the solution. So I declare you the winner of the bet. Yes. Um, and if there were beers staked, well then. So we got we got a tweet this week from Carl Sherman, uh, and he wrote in to tell us that they essentially did the same thing with the SlideShare app. Hmm. So it's it is something like it is essentially uh been done before. Yeah. I'm not the first person to come up with this solution, but I am the first person to make a big deal of it and be all like, <laughs> yeah, I did it. <laughs> um <laughs> but the other thing is like I want I think this is something that Apple should have just like this should be implemented. This should be default, right? The the like am I wrong in thinking that the alternative which is to have these to inset your content like that and then just have it scroll the regular width, this full width of the page is kind of useless. Mm. Yeah. 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 Mm. So in the spirit of that, right, um, I've actually submitted a radar on this. Excellent. Uh, with And so you can, uh, I will post the link to the open radar page uh, on in our show notes. Cool. The radar number is 19075189. Oh, if you're listening very yeah, yeah if you're if you're listening carefully uh the link is also within the is in the readme of the project that I created um and so I've submitted a radar. I haven't heard anything back yet which is kind of sad I'm sure you will but it hasn't also it also hasn't been marked as a duplicate or anything so you know fingers crossed you're so going to get works as intended yeah yeah uh if if there is somebody out there from apple that is listening Maybe you could look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I highly doubt it. Uh, but yay, I won the bet. <sighs> awesome. And yay, I've got a solution Congrats. to my annoying uh, collection view problem. And so yay, thank I you. don't drink beer, so... Oh, right. Well, yeah. then we'll get, you know, celebratory copies. Um, we also got it from the same listener a some feedback follow-up about Swift. Right. Um, so I think we were discussing Swift last time, and... Maybe one of the things I complained about was um, having less of a clear sense about what's the best way of approaching Swift. Like, I feel like Objective-C, I've been writing it long enough and reading other people's Objective-C long enough to kind of agree on some style things. Sure. But Swift, I feel like it's still a little bit up in the air. Um, 
anyway, the same team that are behind um, the SlideShare app have got a Swift style guide on GitHub. Um, and it's pretty good. It just goes through and outlines what they've decided they'd like their style to be. I think a lot of it is really sensible. Ben, you've looked at this as well, haven't you? Do you, do you see anything yeah, you liked it all or looked, didn't like? it all looked pretty normal. I think it's good to have a set standard. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me as, well, that's crazy. So, One of the things that I'm finding weird about Swift is how much um, flexibility there is in the in its syntax. So there's so much stuff that you can specify, but you don't need to. Yeah, like semicolons. They should have just been a, they should just be no semicolons. Like you just need to make a call. Right. And I think that, I think we could safely say good Swift style at this point is no semicolons. Because why would you Agreed. put them in if you don't need to? Um, but what about things like when you, you know, there's type inference, right? So it's possible yeah. that you can um, declare a type and just assign a value to it and not specify the type. Sorry, declare a variable, assign a value, and not specify the type and let the compiler infer the type from what you've assigned it. Um, do you, Would you always use that type inference um, where you can or would you always specify the type even if it can be inferred by the compiler or would you mix them together? I think what – I don't know if this is right, but my personal preference so far has to be – has been too, sorry. Um, if it's like a primitive, including a string, you just let it go. But if it's, say, like one of your classes or a view controller or something that's like a bit less obvious. Like a more complex type. Yeah. Then I've been typing it out. I don't know why that is. It just... So I... I guess you can I've read been, it then? Yeah. I've been specifying the type pretty much all the time because I, I, I like to avoid ambiguity. And maybe even though the compiler can infer it, I'm not sure that I'm as good as a compiler. Like if I've declared a type, so say I'm dealing with something that's a, that is a CG float and the first value I assign yep. it, I don't include a decimal point. I find it confusing if I haven't labeled the variable as being a CG float, if that makes sense. Like I think the compiler can actually go past your first assignment and see that you're passing the variable to a function that expects a CG float. And so it types it correctly. But looking at your code, right? It's not just no casting really it knowing. then. Uh, I don't know. So maybe you're saying it declares it as an int because I assign, like I've got an integer literal in my code. I would guess it would. I don't know how else it would do it. This is why. This is the ambiguity I'm talking about. Like I don't know what it does. So I was so I will always just put in specify the type. Man, maybe this is just coming. Yeah. From- maybe you just need to read the book again. <laughs> Oh, I need to read the book again. <laughs> I found out this fortnight using um, Swift that there's a lot about it that I didn't quite get or I misunderstood or I've just assumed wrong. So I'm sure for half the people listening and probably both of you too, um, you're going to laugh at me. But uh, I got into a real mix uh, this week dealing with arrays in Swift. Um, I had an array. It had some stuff in it. Uh, I wrote a function that added some stuff to it. And then later on in my code, I did something with the array. And I was confusing yeah. myself because I, the code, so created array with some things in it, later on had some things to it, later on still uh, access the things. When I was accessing the things, the stuff that I'd added at part two just weren't there. And I'm like stepping through the code and I'm seeing them being added. I'm like, okay. Things get added to the array. Array is growing in size. The new elements are in the array. Fantastic. Go jump to the point where I'm accessing the things from the array and um, hit the breakpoint. The things are no longer in the array. Like, what is going on? Was it in another function or something? Uh, it was in the same function. It was outside a... Same scope? No, different scope. Were you setting... I don't even know Swift, so this is a complete guess. Were you... Was it like a... a immutable variable and so it was making a copy of the array at some point you're right it was making a copy of the array Mm. it's got nothing to do with the mutability of it Mm. arrays in swift are value types whenever you do variable equals array in swift you don't get a reference to the array you get a copy of the array Uh so what i what i had done i the array was a a property of my class so i could do self dot my array yep and somewhere in my code, I just assigned it to a variable 
with a different name because I kind of do that from time to time because I don't want to have to type the dot all, all the time. And I'm like dealing with it. You know, it's kind of a shorthand. Just let me refer to this array as yeah, yeah. the array in this bit. So by going var the array equals self.array and then later on going the array.append and adding some stuff to it, I was appending stuff to a new array, a copy of my original array. Right, so it just copies it. So you would, if you wanted to put it back into the array, you'd have to reassign it to... Yes, I would. Right. I'd have yeah. to reassign it back again um, or just not do that temporary copy in the meantime and just yeah. refer to the full one. And I can't believe I've been using Swift for as long as I have now and you know, <laughs> completely confidently going, yeah, Swift is awesome. It's actually not that hard to get your head around. It's more or less just like you can treat it just like Objective-C and fundamentally misunderstanding that arrays are value types in Swift. That might have come out of all that crazy array stuff. Remember all that? Yeah. And I'm surprised it hasn't bitten me sooner than now. Hmm. But there you go. So I've now... I didn't know, know that, that either. So now that we've uh, we've had our Swift conversation, can we move on to uh, the topics that I <laughs> missed out on last week? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, now that we've done follow up, follow up is great. Um, so we have we have a couple of topics that we can talk about, but I think there is a topic that we just need to kind of get out because we missed out on talking about it on an episode that was released after WatchKit was released. And so we have never, we have not discussed the release of WatchKit. And that's pretty exciting. And that is both exciting and also it's it's terrible that we haven't, we haven't, didn't manage to get to it. Except that it's obviously not exciting for any of us to have actually downloaded the new Watch SDK and started doing stuff with well, it. Well, I, I, I downloaded it at work and I tried to, I downloaded the, the sample project that they have. What's it called? Like Lister or something. Anyway. There's a sample project that you can download that has a watch app that you can run. You're supposed to, and I, I tried to run it, and I was at work at the time, so I couldn't, like, I wasn't going to sit there and just kind of spend like hours on it. And I tried to run it, and it crashed. Oh no! Uh, so it it had errors, and so I was just like, yeah, I, I'm not going to deal with this right now. And then I never went back. I haven't even downloaded. Story it. of my life. <laughs> so. The very little that I've looked at it, and I mean, I've I've listened to a few other people's podcasts about it, and I think maybe we should link to, for instance, David Smith's uh, hmm. stuff on it because he's taken very keen interest in it. Yep. If you remember, allow me to take you on a nostalgic journey back a handful of episodes back to when we were discussing what we thought might WatchKit might look like, hmm. and I believe it was I that mentioned that watches WatchKit apps or watch apps might be kind of uh, just extensions of what of like an iOS app and so you would implement them much the same way kind of correct hmm. yeah pretty close and especially in this first pass because apparently there's talk that they're going to be uh, opening Something it up else in yeah, the future but opening up in the future but like at the, at the moment it's pretty much an extension yeah in yeah? fact uh, so watching the video it looks like um it is an iOS 8 extension right and it executes on your phone Right, so you essentially have uh, you have an extension that runs all of the code for the actual watch app, air quotes around that watch quote app, yeah, unquote. And essentially, the only code that runs on the watch itself is like a is like a UI thing. Yeah, so it, it's I don't know if this was made clear anywhere, but it seems to me that the app running on the watch, it, like. Your app doesn't run on the watch at all. You don't get your own process. Right. But there is a process on the watch that can load storyboards. Yep. And perhaps it's a single process that loads storyboards, multiple different storyboards provided by different watch kit extension mm. bundles. Yep. Um, and that your code runs on your phone as your watch kit extension and interacts yeah. with the storyboard. And so then anything that kind of gets any sort of uh, computation that needs to happen... Uh, let's say you need to load a map, right? Mm. Um, if you want to load a map, um, what ends up happening is that you the the like the user interacts with the the watch in such a way that it, you know calls up the the map view, and then the phone renders a map with any with the number of pins like you can that you can drop on it and all that sort of stuff. It renders that map as an image, and then just forwards that image through to the watch, and the watch just displays a static image of the map. And I guess maybe the pins might be animated in some way, like to give it that feeling of like this is actually a live thing. You know how mm. like your current location will kind of flash with mm. the rings. 
but in any case, like the watch, the actual uh, interface that you're interacting with, with on the watch is essentially static. Like it's yeah, not, yeah. like it's kind of, it's actually kind of genius. Really. Uh, it seems like they've done a lot to make it so that the watch is doing as little as possible. Right. Which means that hopefully this means that, uh, that you know, regardless of whatever, what may come, like regardless of whatever apps that you're running, quote, on your watch, mm. uh, they're not really, they're not really yeah. kind of affecting your battery life yeah. all that much. which is kind of interesting. So, so the difference between having two or three apps, air quotes, on your watch and having 10 or 20 apps, air quotes, on your watch shouldn't be a major difference well, in battery sh- life it, because well it, it probably won't because they're not executing on your watch right um, at least at this stage yeah. we we're probably likely to see that something where they execute on your watch at some stage um it makes me wonder when you say what we're likely to see something where they execute on your watch at some stage um how long is the first generation hardware going to last for I don't know like is it going to be a matter of whatever you get early next year 6 months later there's a new hardware out that's got greater capabilities. I don't know that they're going to do a six-month cycle on a watch, on the watch. But it sounds like that's about the that sort of time extreme. frame people are discussing for the the apps that execute on the watch. Um, and, and so is it that maybe, the first-gen hardware will be capable of it once they've got the software right? But maybe what's hap- going to happen isn't so much that they run that the apps that run on your watch. Maybe it's some other form of app, like... Apps are still going to be tied to your phone, yeah. yeah. Like it's like Maybe. they're going to be tied to your phone in some way. Like it rather like they'll be bundled with the phone, unless well, they're going to build create an, a watch app store. So there are first party apps on the watch that can work without a phone present, right? Yeah, because you'd want to be able to make an app that didn't need your phone. Like a lot of third party right. people would want that. Yeah. Well, so I want. We clearly don't have that yet, and the question is, will we get that? Maybe. But maybe what's what happens is that uh, you, you're able to pass. Maybe it works something like uh, handoff isn't really the right the right way of looking at it, but maybe it's like this thing that kind of, it, when your phone is around, it runs an, as as an extension, and then when your phone is away, you have like a lesser hmm. lesser version of the capabilities or whatever. It's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves. But focusing on the first implementation, yeah. Have you guys got any ideas of of the sort of app that you'd want to use and the sort of interaction you'd want on your watch versus on your phone? So, I don't think I'm going to want to run any do any sort of meaningful like super meaningful tasks on my watch. Yeah. If I'm interacting with your your app for more than you know, a few seconds, then you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. I agree. I kind of think that the thing that that form factor is going to be really good for is of me making it so that I don't need to interact with the app. Yeah. Um. So at the moment, if there's an app that I use where I say, for example, I've just woken up and I want to know what the weather's going to be today. Do I need to wear long sleeves or short sleeves? You and could I have a take an umbrella. You could have a pocket weather glance. Right. So I could just look at my watch and know that without having to unlock my phone, right. find an icon, launch the icon, wait for it to refresh from the network, and then see the details. Hmm. Um. Likewise, the sort of the sort of apps that people have been doing on phones where you can like control like the Internet of Things style stuff, you know, you can control your connected light bulbs from your phone. I can never imagine that being useful because it seems so much work to like wake up my phone, well, find the app that lets me control the thing. Like even the Apple TV, I mean that was this was discussed on the most recent talk show, the remote app on the phone is such a pain to control the Apple TV. Because, like, if I want to pause a show that I'm watching, it takes me 30 seconds to hit pause mm. using my the remote app on my phone. Potentially, I wonder if the watch is going to be able to take better advantage of the context of the things that it's near. So it knows you're watching the TV, essentially. Yeah, and it knows you're in your home where there are connected light bulbs that you can control, or it knows that right. you've... Um, so that, you know, it can surface the 
an int- basically an interactive notification or a kind of you're thinking you. like some sort of beacon type thing aren't not you? necessarily beacon <laughs> but yeah like well using the same sort of technology like it yeah. knows where you roughly where you are and so it can give you context yeah. um, or it can give other things context yeah. and in fact the inter- going back to interactive notica- notifications i think i remember from apple's wwdc session about interactive notifications they showed things like um I don't know, like an eBay. I don't know if it was actually eBay, but it was an auction app where you've got uh, an item you're bidding on and the interactive notification pops up saying, auction's about to close, do you want to up your bid? And so rather than having to launch the app to to take that action in the actual notification itself, you can say, yes, bid more, no. And I kind of think, I haven't actually seen many apps start to take advantage of those interactive notifications. I've seen very little. Um, But it strikes me that when the watch comes out, that's going to be a huge win if there if there's any thing that you can draw my attention to it and allow me to immediately make a decision by just one tap then i think that'll be a great use but i can't actually really think of that many things in my life where that's true right where there's things that i can respond to without having to then go look fire up my email client read the full email or fire you know yeah whatever it is i'm just looking forward to i think it's just best as a remote display like you were saying like say you're walking down the street using um, your GPS on your phone to navigate, not having to pull out your phone every two seconds to see, am I still walking the right way? You can just sort of look at your watch. It'll, it'll tap you on the wrist when you need to turn. Yeah, apparently. yeah, that's great. And the weather, the weather's great. <laughs> is what? the weather great or is it raining again? <laughs> it's not raining, but it is cloudy. Anyway. <laughs> I think that we might see, like, it might surprise us, the sort of things that come out. And I think this is the sort of thing where the the fact that they've opened it up means that there's a lot more potential mm. um, because if you look at the like the, the ecosystem for the phone and the iPad, right, the size of that and the capabilities that 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 has is so much larger than Apple could ever have made by themselves. Oh, yeah. And not only because they don't have the resources to actually, you know, create the, the required apps and, you know, put effort into them, but also because of this the sort of thing where we've talked about before like they might have the idea but their implementation is not going to be the same as the implementation that you make Hmm. and i think the way that the ios sdk has evolved and the features of ios has responded to the sorts of idea the sorts of apps people were making like apple kind of i think the pattern has been have a quite a limited set of functionality i mean like the first phone didn't have copy and paste yeah you know didn't have background modes at all yeah. And then they gradually um, see what people are doing, see how people are perverting the limited functionality to try and do things that aren't possible, and then go, ah, okay, well, if we introduce this feature, like, you know, um, I don't know, the background push notifications that allow apps to wake up for a little minute to then right. contact their servers and get the latest data, you know, things like that, they realized that that there are features that they could add that lots of people would then take advantage of. And they may not have actually thought to add those features until people had started to try and do things that would benefit from them. Right. Um, And I think this is the sort of thing where, like, uh, we were talking about this the other day, uh, where, like, even the background app, like the background notifications, the the quiet notifications that wake the app up, are being used in, and kind of maybe maybe abused and maybe kind of misused in in ways that Apple never would have thought of, but actually provide functionality that Apple never would have considered that was something that people would use it for. Yep. I think that there's lots of situations of that where people find a way to get a feature in their app to work. Yeah. Perhaps not using the a feature in the API as intended. Um well and- I, the the example is like using the GP the GPS thing that uh um, that Marco Arment put into Instapaper. Yeah, and, so using uh, geofences. Using geofences your... to yeah. get the downloads rather than the background push notification. So yeah. that's an ex- a perfect example, yeah. right? Yeah. So that in that case, for people that didn't follow all of this, um, the requirement was from time to time, data on the server changes and there wasn't any way for an app to know about new data. Well, um, other than just, you know, polling the, the server, but you couldn't do that in, in the, the background. background. So yeah, the, the workaround that people came up with was um geofences were introduced which meant that apps could register um certain locations and when you cross the boundary from outside a geofence to inside it the app would be launched in the background for a while um and i don't think apple introduced that 
intending it to be a way that apps could get new data from the server. I think right, they introduced it for location-based apps. Yeah. Um, but people realized, hey, I could set up a geofence around my house, and when I get home, my app will launch in the background. It will be on a Wi-Fi network, and I can download well, you know, the latest data so that it's ready to go when I next launch the app. And then a few releases later, Apple brings in push notification design specifically for that, that when the server knows that there's new content for a particular user, you can send a push to that user. Yeah, I think this is the sort of thing, and I think kind of bringing it back to the watch, and maybe we don't need to talk much more about WatchKit itself other than that. Bringing it back to the watch, like I think like the way that people use the limited functionality uh, of what what is it we've got like these kind of uh, app extension type interfaces where it's just a UI remote remote app or remote UI or whatever mm. uh, and then glances which are the you know basically single view th- you know details about what's going on in the app that's on your phone and then the interactive notifications um, the way that people use those and the way that people misuse those will I think is going to inform what Apple does with WatchKit later on in the year yeah or next year i reckon they've probably already started what they're going to do well yeah yeah that's what it, i meant no no i mean sorry i know you meant next year i mean like a year even right. down the track so like I yeah, it's what they what they do in the future yeah. i guess then is is uh is going to be informed by what people actually do with mm. with watch kit and i think i think that's really kind of exciting because i think like a lot of the things that they release at that point they're never going to, like, they never would have thought of that mm. back when they first started because it was not an implementation that they saw, that they knew about. It's kind of, it's kind of cool, I think. Mm. That in, in a way, even though we kind of, a lot of the time Apple is kind of viewed as a closed system and closed, you know, they're closed off and we never know what's going on in there and they never really seem to listen they oh, no, they, they kind do. of are, that's, yeah. and that's the thing. That's, that they are, yeah. like regardless of how much, and they they actually are paying attention, and that's why we get these new features. And yeah. I think that's really cool. And I think that I'm kind of excited about WatchKit, even if it, even if in this first instance, it's probably not going to be particularly uh, useful or great. I mean, it's. I think that people will surprise us. I'm curious, Jelly, what you thought of the storyboards only thing, because you can't write views in code anymore <laughs> for WatchKit. Yeah, so you can't write using code, but that's part of the part of the reason for that is that it's like it's essentially um, being built and run by the the yeah yeah um, by the watch, right? So you can't inject your own code. I mean, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm f- perfectly fine. I mean, it's limited anyway. You're not going to be able to do much more than what you're going to be able to do in storyboards any anyway. Mm. And my problem with storyboards, for the most part, has always been like the the fact that you you get to a point in a in a customized app where everything is just white boxes. So my point has always my problem has always been that you end up with just these these screens which are just white boxes everywhere. Maybe maybe the occasional image, but that doesn't mean that like I mean it doesn't mean that the, a they're not useful completely. It just means that I prefer to do it a particular way. But then, even then, like they've brought in these these new features where you can use uh, what is it, IB designables? Yeah, IB to- designable, yeah. IB inspectable, and they're awesome. So I had I have to say thanks to Jane for drawing our attention to them when she was on the show because I went and used one the other day, yeah. and it is incredible. It is the future. It is so like I'm so excited about this. So basically, once you've implemented IB designable and IB inspectable, literally all you have to do is annotate your class with IB designable. Annotate a variable or a property with IB inspectable and interface builder, your storyboard editor, will then provide you with in the, the pane where you set all of your properties of the view, will provide you with a way of setting the variables you've set a inspectable. Right. So if you have a Boolean, it'll give you a, like a checkbox. Yeah. So the one I did was I did a gradient view, right? So I wanted a, a UI view using a CA gradient layer mm-hmm. to display a gradient in its background. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to be able to pick the start color and the end color for the gradient. So I exposed two properties, one for start color, one for end color. Um, and I, I got color pickers and I could pick them and then it would update live in the storyboard editor. It would show mm-hmm. me the gradient that I'd applied and I could go, no, that color's not quite right. Change it there. No, it's still not quite right. Change it there. So something that if I had been doing it in code, 
And I was actually um, implementing a, a design that I'd been given. Um, and for whatever reason, I couldn't get the color to look quite right. The designer had done a gradient in Photoshop using particular color values. I had a PNG of it. Um, I was using the digital color meter to try and sample the colors to figure out what they were. And then I'd used hard-coded values in my code and run it, and it would look kind of murky and not quite right. So I could, once I had it as um, using IB designable and inspectable, um, I could actually just pick a color, see it in real time, go, no, that's not quite right. Pick one with a higher saturation. Yeah, that looks better. Right. And I probably got, you know, I could try out 50 different colors in the space of 30 seconds. Because whereas, you didn't have to keep yeah, building and running. Yeah. It's fantastic. And then I had to delete it all because I can't use it with iOS 7. <laughs> the only problem I found with it was now when you open your storyboard, it rebuilds your project which it has to do to know how to run that right. that view that it's trying to display. Mm. And I so I ended up turning it off for a view I had because I didn't think I was getting really any benefit. The view was kind of just like a custom-drawn view. It didn't really have anything configurable or whatever. And having Xcode rebuild my project every time I was opening the storyboard was just slowing me down. So I ended up turning it off. Right. But apart from that, it was really good. And it was so easy. I literally wrote IB designable at the top of a class and I was in Objective-C as well, so it works in Objective-C too. Yeah. And it just worked. It was magic. Was your class in a framework or in your main bundle? It was in my main bundle. So I read some documentation that was suggesting that it had to be in a framework to work and that's clearly not the case because I did the same. My designable class was in my main bundle. But I think it's faster if it's in a framework. Because it doesn't. Yeah, that's probably because it doesn't have to keep rebuilding target. it. Yeah, it just builds your yeah your bun your framework, and if you haven't touched your framework, it's already built and up to date. Yeah, that um, makes sense. That makes I think a lot the of idea. Sense. I think the idea behind the these IB designables are that you basically create a library of uh, things that you use over and over again. Yeah, as opposed to making every every UI class that you essentially write something that you can preview in your. Yeah, in, in interface builder, but and I don't know. I would hope that there gets to be a set of these resources that are available either from Apple or from like a third, like open source, because just things like all of the stuff that you can edit on a CA layer, like um, corner radius, the yeah. shadow properties, like you can't edit any of them in the storyboard editor at the moment, and just being able to say, you know, drag some a view onto your canvas and then say set the corner radius set the um shadow property set the opacity of of different elements yeah it, it seems like um everyone shouldn't have to go and create their own ib designable version of a ui view that exposes the properties of the ca layer to storyboard yeah, yeah definitely but i mean it, that that being said there are going to be there are always going to be uh differences in the way that you want to implement some things I think I think building up your own library as well as using what other people provide is always going to be beneficial. Oh, definitely. And yeah. I think that um, where having your own library is going to be awesome is things like Jane was saying at, at places like a big bank where you might have um, like a design language for the company and you've got a suite of different apps and the design team have created a set of like a framework that encapsulates right. kind of the, the design guide and it says you can pick between, you know, these predefined styles or do yeah. you yeah well so i mean i have i have uh i've started building together like a utilities thing and it, there's no reason why i couldn't make those the classes that uh ui stuff ib designables and then mm. use storyboards to uh to implement them and it certainly would work at somewhere like um you know my 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 office where uh where we're you know if we ever want to build an app we're likely going to want to reuse some of the yeah. things that we've put yeah. before and we do that we already do that sort of stuff uh, for web projects, yeah. So why not do it? Why not do it with? Uh... Yeah, I think it's going to make a huge difference. The frustration is that it only works with iOS eight. I kind of thought that um you could have a class that was IB designable, and in iOS eight you'd get the pickers in your storyboard editor, and then you could put kind of default values in that would apply on iOS seven. It would just ignore the annotations that it didn't understand. That didn't seem to work for me when mm. I. There's probably that. a lot more going on behind the scenes than what you what you're actually seeing with those couple of annotations, though. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but when I did it, um, and then tried to run the app in the I on iOS seven, the view just it was as if I hadn't assigned a custom class for the view. Like I just got 
Mm. Like my view did load, was never called. Mm. Yeah, it seemed like it was just using a straight UI view because it didn't like the class that I'd assigned as the custom class, um, mm. which was kind of annoying. Anyway. So to answer your question, Ben, your original question about how I feel about <laughs> it, I don't, I don't actually mind. That's good. <laughs> I think, I think the way that the the whole uh, the watch kit is implemented at this point, it kind of it makes a lot of sense. You're essentially you're essentially building static views, um, and you might as well do that in a in a manner that you're actually where you're actually seeing the seeing what's going on. Um, I think it works. I think it works well because my because and what got us into this conversation is is kind of this is what it is because there's not a lot you can do with WatchKit at this point in time other than kind of you know adjusting colors and adding an image and doing you know some very basic kind of stuff at this point. Um, all of that can be done with storyboards. It can look right in your storyboard. It's you're not going to end up with a view that is just full of white boxes. Because you don't have custom, you know, UI views or anything like that at this point. In fact, you can't even use UI views in WatchKit. They don't exist. They're just, they're, it's, you know, there's, there's a whole set of other classes that, that are involved. So I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly fine with it. And, uh, you know, it, it receives the jelly stamp of, of approval. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that everyone was saying, oh, WatchKit's going to be Swift only. And it turned out, it, of course, it wasn't. But the thing mm. that did come out of it was it was storyboards only. And no one predicted yeah. that. I didn't read that anywhere. No, I don't think anybody predicted that. I mean, it's certainly not a surprise given the way that they decided to go with it. With yeah, the, like, kind it of like totally UI. makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes a super like it makes a massive amount of sense. And if it means that, like, I think maybe, maybe it gives us a little bit of a peek into the future uh, of what we can maybe we can expect with other. With where Apple wants to go with other apps, like what what happens when storyboards get so good that we can just use them? It, does that mean that uh, you know the code that runs our apps can be a lot uh, more kind of succinct and compile you know and run faster and all, do all that sort of stuff? Like, is that where they're going with this? And I think maybe that kind of this is kind of a peek into that. Yeah, I pretty much put my entire apps together these days just by. Downloading CocoaPods and then making a storyboard. I don't write code anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to read about any of the things that we've mentioned today, there will be show notes. They will be online on a web page, linked from a web page anyway. They'll probably be on a web page, but not one per web page, multiple web pages. And those web pages will be linked from mobilecouch.co forward slash 46. Um, it's purple. You can also send us a message. Send us an email. You can email hello at mobilecouch.co or you can jump on the website again. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact and you can uh, send us an email. Tell us what you think about Apple Watch, Watch Kit. Tell us if photos, you're going to buy framework, one. Whether or not you're going to buy one. Whether or not you heard the thunderstorm that was going on outside. Whatever. Anyway. Send us an email. Uh, do it. Do it now. You can also contact us individually. Jake is on Twitter. That's Jay McMullen. That's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Ben is Ben Trengrove. That's B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E. And I am Jelly Bean Soup. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was amazing. We're so excited about the future of the podcast, especially now with our wonderful patrons. We look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks' time for the next episode. What, 47? I think that's what comes after 46. Yeah, It'll be good. We shall see you then. Bye. Bye. I'm going to write a Watch Kid app to read the show notes. Brilliant. Are you going to say bye, Ben? <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> oh. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>